Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Men in Blazers ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Price Picks is the easiest and most exciting way to get in on the action. Whether you watch your favorite sports and players, pick more, pick less. It's that easy. Download the app today. Use code MIB for a first deposit match of up to $100. New Year's is now in the rearview mirror. By now, some of the excitement about our New Year's resolutions may be dying down, much like my excitement for Chelsea Football Club as we get further and further into the season. If you're looking for performance apparel that can help give you the extra push you need to keep up with your health goals, Viore has you covered. Viore creates incredibly versatile and comfortable activewear designed to look great in everyday life in and out of the gym, or in my case, on or off the tennis court. Plus, Viore is 100% offsetting their carbon footprint by offsetting 100% of their plastic footprint from 2019 and beyond. They are utilizing better sustainable materials for their products, empowering your best active life. With Viore, you can feel good about the things you buy and also how they are made. Viore is an investment in your happiness. For our listeners, they are offering 20% off your first purchase. Get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet at viore.com slash MIB. That's V-U-O-R-I dot com slash MIB. Not only Will you receive 20% off your first purchase, but enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75 and free returns? Trust me, go to viore.com slash MIB and discover the versatility of Viore clothing. This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men in Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's Welcome to a Men in Blazers pod special with a remarkable gent, one of my favourite novelists of the modern era. But if ever a bloke was more than just your run-of-the-mill, internationally acclaimed, award-winning, best-selling author, it's he. A polymath who learned to write under the tutelage of Joyce Carol Oates and Toni Morrison, yet elected to become a corporate lawyer and perhaps worse, a management consultant before saving himself and his adoring readers by finding his feet as a writer. Further proof that many of my favourite people in life are lawyers who leave the law. He's also roamed around the globe, living between California, London, New York and Lahore. And perhaps because of that, his novels often centre upon outsider characters whose life arcs he portrays with deliciously crafted writing. The ability to hook you with a rollicking yarn and then deliver a deeply emotional punch that you never see coming. First book I read of his was How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia. Stop listening to this. Just buy it. Read it now. It's a scintillating mock self-help book charting an unnamed man's rags-to-riches ascent from rural peasant like me and DVD delivery boy to corporate tycoon like Davo in a country that's vaguely Pakistan. His latest novel, Exit West. Oh, it's a phenomenal work. A taut, poetic, magical tale set amidst the themes of conflict, refugees, globalisation, populism, anxiety and travel bans. On the eve of Tuesday's announcement of the Man Booker Prize, the literary world's Champions League, for which his book is one of six nominees. We welcome to the panic room. Oh. Mr. Moosin Hamid, 
Thank you. Wow. That was exhausting. What an introduction. Oh, you PR people, they're very good. They wrote it for me. But I've got to congratulate you on the success of Exit West and the Booker Prize brouhaha. Have you got your suit game ready? Are you at Donald Glover levels? I've had a Sherwani stitched. So it's a black tie, which means you can come in national dress. Yes. So I'm wearing this long... It's sort of... Imagine a narrow jacket meets the Matrix. That's what I'm wearing. Oh, God, that's just Tuesday night at my house. (laughs) What what colour? Black. Why are they hosting the Booker Prize? Just give this man the award right now. I want to start by giving my listeners a sense of your career journey, your life journey. I've got to admit, I'm fascinated by it. You are an interstitial man. (laughs) Professionally, you started off as a corporate lawyer, which you, shock horror, found boring. You became a management consultant, McKinsey, while writing on the side in your mid-twenties. At the time, did you do the cubicle thing, yearning to be a writer, or did it just naturally emerge like a space shuttle pulling away from its solid booster rocket? I, um had a sort of very small jetpack, you know, strapped to me, which is this writing, which didn't, I didn't think would get me aloft, very honestly. I thought, you know, you can't make a living doing this stuff. So I wanted to be a writer. I just didn't imagine you could do it for a living. And I finished law school with $100,000 in debt, and I needed to pay that off. And so I took a job. I was working as a consultant in New York and later London. To be honest, I learned a lot. It was a great time. It wasn't that, you know, I look back and say, what a mistake. It was fantastic. Got to live in New York City. I got to learn about the world. I mean, I knew nothing about corporate life, jobs, work, how the economy worked. In my fiction now, I'm really interested in how people make a living and, you know, what they do when they go to work. And that whole side of humanity I discovered at that stage. So I had a great time. You're now a globally respected writer, twice Booker Prize nominated. How has that changed your sense of self? Do you find... Restaurant dinner reservations are instantly easier to get. Phone calls that weren't getting returned, they're now returned immediately. No. Um, (laughs) uh, Sadly, I'm much more frustrated at how things have not gotten easier from a restaurant reservation standpoint. I think I feel snubbed every time I call and they say, no, there's nothing till midnight. But uh, In terms of your sense of self? Well, sense of self, I keep it relatively simple. Every Wednesday, me and my buddies get together and hang out. And it's the same bunch of guys who hang out that I've been hanging out with the last 30 years. None of them are writers. They were friends before I went to college. And in Lahore, that's basically my posse. And they keep me straight. If I'm getting full of myself, they will very quickly take me down. And when I'm down, they'll pick me up. I think I've separated a little bit the sort of professional side of being a writer from, you know, my life. My life is spend time with my kids, my wife, my friends, travel a fair bit. And then I put my head down and write. In addition to that. Secrets of success, those of you who are listening. Get yourself a posse in Lahore on a Wednesday night. The boys. Everything, everything becomes possible. You mentioned Lahore. I mean, your life has been a global trek. Not just a professional wanderer, but a geographic one also. When you were nine years old in the 1980s, your family moved back from California to Lahore, the place of your birth, but the land you had not been to since you were three. The absolute nature of this shift, I try and fathom it. And I can't, one minute, you're living the kind of life that I'd seen, like depicted gloriously in Heart to Heart, Charles in Charge, The Love Boat. Oh, the next, you're in Pakistan, in Lahore, in a world before the internet, torn away from your friends who you never saw again or heard from. Horror of horrors. 
a land in which it was just one television channel. It must have been darkness for a kid. It was pretty weird. I mean, the lack of television channels, there used to be once or twice a week on Pakistani TV, they'd show one American TV show, you know, Knight Rider or like <sighs> Trapper John MD. And that was the highlight of my week. You know, I'd sort of, of your existence. Yeah, I would sort of wait and for the build up towards this one American pop culture artifact that I could grab onto. I would get copies of Mad Magazine at the bookstore. Months because later. Months later. And in Mad Magazine, there'd be spoofs of films I'd never see. And I'd read the spoofs as my way of connecting with those films. So I didn't know what The Karate Kid was, but I could tell it was pretty damn funny because of Mad Magazine. And so videotape culture came a few years later. So when I got there, it really was off, in, off by myself. But over time, as the layers of Americanness peeled off you, how did your sense of America change to the one that you had developed in California as a kid? I'm not sure the layers of America ever peeled off me, but I think I got more layers put on top. So I didn't become less American when I was in Pakistan. I just got more Pakistaniness added, it's like an onion, oh. you know, but building up or like a hailstone, you know, it keeps dropping and freezing and dropping and freezing, gets bigger and bigger. When I was in Pakistan, I did get to see things a little bit differently, right? You come face to face with poverty in a different way, with class hierarchy in a different way, with gender roles. Also, with 25 first cousins who have your back. And they might beat you up, but, you know, if anybody else tried to, they would be all over them. And, <laughs> and that was, you know, a really good experience. Pakistan, a land of mystery in America, most often in the newspapers in relation to a drone strike. What's America's most common misconception of Pakistan? It's the same as Pakistani's most common misconception about America, was that there's kind of no such thing, right? There's 300 million different variations on America and 200 million different variations on Pakistan. So you have the Taliban and you have gay fashion designers and you have pot-smoking young kids and you have truck drivers and you have poets and you have people falling in love and people dying. There are aspects of Lahore that would be very familiar to you here in New York City. There are art galleries and museums and whatnot. It's the same planet Earth that America is on. In Pakistan, too, people imagine America is like this. And you have to tell them, look, well, you know, there are parts of America that are destitute. And there are parts of America where it's the way you see on TV. And there are parts of America that are completely unfathomable to you. And in America, they also have cars that drive themselves and solve crimes. That's the America that drew me here. You love it. But in your 46 years, you've left Lahore for California. California for Lahore. Lahore for New York. New York, this one's the craziest of all, of all, for London. And then London for Lahore again, where you returned with your wife to raise your kids. What drew you back? I'm a bit of a geographic hussy, you know. I sort of throw myself at city after city. I'm the kind of guy who, when you travel, and I show up in a Rio or a Sydney, very quickly I start thinking, I wonder what it would be like to live here. I start fantasizing. I have my commitments. I'm a married man. I'm committed to my wife. I'm a father. I'm committed to my kids. I'm a writer. I'm committed to my writing. But when it comes to geographies, I have this wandering eye. You know, <laughs> I, I just can't help it. Uh, I look at places and I think, oh, you're pretty cute, Tokyo. It's a problem for anybody who's in my life. My wife has to crack the whip and say, look, no, we will not move. I know you've had a nice trip to New York, but calm down and we'll talk about it in a couple of months. And how do you see yourself as a gent with one leg in both cultures, or many legs in many cultures, or neither? I'm a mongrel. It's sort of difficult for me to say, like, I'm part collie and part lab. I'm lots of different stuff 
it's almost impossible now to think. It's not that I'm just American and Pakistani. I'm lots of things. I'm British. Don't forget that one night stand with Tokyo. Oh, my goodness. Who could forget? To this day, I'm a sushi man. I mean, I had sushi before coming here. I'll never forget Tokyo. But, you know, I think what's happened is that I sort of have to grope my way to my own understanding of what things are and muddle my way through and partly be okay with being confused about stuff, which I think is quite useful. Living with the confusion. Yeah. Is that actually the ideal? Absolutely. I think it's a lot easier but more dangerous to have sort of false certainties that like America is bad and Pakistan is good or vice versa. Actually, the truth is it's a very messy planet and identity is very messy. I mean, Dutton Fundamentalist, my second novel, is about a guy who's sort of part Pakistani, part American, and feels he has to choose. And the process of choosing one of those two identities, he does this enormous emotional damage to himself. I'm the opposite. I didn't choose. I'd rather be a mongrel. Let's talk about Exit West, because it is a remarkable piece of writing. Your terrific agent, Jay Mandel, the last great bookman, sent it over to me with a note saying, this is the perfect book for our age. And I put it on a pile of books with notes from agents saying, this is the perfect book for our age. But yours really is. I mean, it's part love story, part tale of refugee migration, human transformation that starts in an unnamed city, a fictionalized Lahore turned Aleppo. The first hundred pages where you describe the deterioration of life in that city as militants take over and the layers of freedom erode. Society moves through chaos towards a lockdown of a theological state where terror becomes casual, commonplace. You write, for one minute we're pottering around our errands as usual and the next we are dying. It's beautifully paced writing. It's truly horrifying. It's the setup for your book ultimately, but I found these to be among the most powerful scenes I've read all year. The book was born out of this terror of what if this were to happen to Lahore. You know, Lahore is an ancient city, thousands of years old, and in Afghanistan nearby, there's Taliban fighting in neighboring countries. Ancient cities are being destroyed by civil war and militancy and terrorism. And so partly it was this nightmare that what if this were to happen? But as I began to write it, I started to feel that maybe this is not a feeling peculiar to people in Lahore. Maybe people who live in big cities anywhere are feeling this fear of the apocalypse. If you're in Milan, you're scared that Italy will crash out of the euro and your pension becomes worthless. If you're in Houston, that a big storm comes and you're flooded. If you're in New York, that America, let's say, comes into the grips of some fascist intolerant leader. I mean, hard as it is to imagine that occurring, but some people might fear it. And so I think to live in a big city today is to live with a kind of fear of the apocalypse, and that's what the novel begins with. The details you include, they are emotionally devastating. How apartment windows with beautiful views instantly become a liability in a world filled with snipers. A marijuana dealer operating, oblivious to the new reality, which means he's going to be publicly executed within weeks. Or the experience of an old man watching young kids play soccer in the street, being overwhelmed first with nostalgia and then nausea as he realizes they're actually insurgent fighters kicking around a human head. Where did you get them all? And how did you choose which of these details to include and which to leave out? Lahore is sort of on the periphery of this stuff. So there are bombasts in occasion. I have been to the funeral of a person who was assassinated. The kid's school does get called off because of some 
threat that has come through. So this stuff is sort of around, but it's the difference between, if you live in Sydney, Australia, shark attacks are around. It's not jaws, you know, it's not like everybody goes in and they get chomped. But one surfer or two every year maybe does. And that allows you to imagine the fear of being in that situation. And I think the details in the book start with those things that one sees in Lahore. But my approach to them in deciding what to put in and what to leave out is, one thing I've observed in Lahore is we avert our gaze, right? We don't spend our time in Lahore staring at the horrific stuff. We see it and quickly look away and pretend it didn't happen. And so in the novel, there are these horrifying moments, but we don't linger in them. They come and they pass and then attempts at normalcy resume, like listening to music or hanging out or having a date. That's what everybody's trying to focus on. But as things get worse and worse and worse, those attempts at normalcy become harder to sustain. And the core narrative of your book then kicks in, aided by your use of magical realism as you jumpstart the refugee experience. In your exit Westworld, a system of magical doors establish a global system of exit and entry, Lion the Witch and the Wardrobe style. Doors that could take you elsewhere, often to places far away, you write, fling open. Really, it's a tool that allows you to explore a world that's wonderfully, chaotically overwhelmed by refugees and migrants. Your life relived ad infinitum. Yeah, it accelerates what's happening. So the next 100 years or 200 years of human migration in the novel happen in one year. And the doors, I think, for me, they are a kind of realism in the sense that the emotional reality of our world today, of our technological world today, is a reality in which distance is collapsing. Like you and I could be having this conversation over Skype and we'd be seeing each other from different continents. And afterwards, I can look at my phone and check an email. And the next thing I'm reading about Antarctica or the surface of Mars or the history of Westeros. And my consciousness is zipping around as though it could go anywhere. And so refugees from Syria are WhatsApping with their relatives in Berlin who are saying, oh, do this when you get to Belgrade, and here's how you cross the Austrian border. Technology is collapsing distance. So the doors are not true to the laws of physics, but I think they are true to the emotional reality of life in the 21st century. The writer Masha Gessin begins her history of the Soviet state of Birubajan, fantastic book, Where the Jews Aren't, by saying that the central question that faced every Jew every morning whenever they woke up anywhere in Europe for much of the first half of the 20th century was, shall we stay or shall we go? It's the basic human question that lives in your book, when do we flee? It's a tough one because we imagine that the decision to go is straightforward. Why don't these people go? Can't they see the pogroms are happening? Can't they see the guy with the funny moustache is coming to power? And can't we see that the bearded dudes are coming on their pickup trucks with their AK-47s? And of course, people can see those things. But in the novel, one thing which I was trying to explore, for example, in Said's relationship to his father and whether he has to leave this person behind, is how I would feel. I live next door to my parents in Pakistan. They've gotten older now. And every morning before they go to work and before my kids go to school, the grandkids and grandparents hang out and play together. In many ways, that's why I'm in Pakistan, probably more than any other reason. Is I, just, I grew up like that to a certain extent when I was in Pakistan, grandparents, grandkids, parents. It's, it's great. Got to say, if this podcast is nothing else, it's an infomercial for the Lahore tourist business. What <laughs> <laughs> move there. You've got your mates on a Wednesday night. You see your parents with your kids every morning before they go to school. It's the perfect life. Yeah, well, I mean, there, there are a couple of minor downsides, but you're right. There's good to it, too. And so when you have to make that decision, all right, we won't see each other every day. Maybe we will never see each other again. 
that's a hell of a decision to make. And so, of course, people hesitate. Should I stay or should I go? Maybe I should go, but my heart says stay. The pain of that, we think that refugees are coming to take something from us, that they've given nothing. And we often forget that they've given everything. They've given their language, they've given their food, they've given their music, they've given the people they love, and they've left that behind and come. What more can they give? How was your book received in Pakistan? Well, this is the interesting thing, right? People are different. I once had this encounter with this guy in D.C., blonde, blue-eyed, pierced eyebrows, dreadlocked, lugged-eared chap. And he came up to me after a Rotten Fundamentalist reading and said, this book is about me. (laughs) <laughs> and I, I remember looking down at the book in his hand and saying, you know, I'm just curious to see what he's holding there. And it was the Rutten Fundamentalist. And he said, well, you know, I went to an Ivy League school and I worked on Wall Street and I dropped out and I'm a yoga instructor. And of course, it clicked in my head at that moment that it was about him. The Rutten Fundamentalist, whatever I thought it was at its heart, was a story of an idealistic college grad who goes to work. And so it's like that in Pakistan. I had one time, the young man came down to the Karachi Literature Festival and handed me a note. And I opened the note and it said, look, there's three of us in a small town in the middle of Pakistan who love your work, love Mott Smoke, my first novel. And so we pulled together our funds so one of us could get in a bus and drive 13 hours and hand you this note. And the reason we want to hand you this note is because we particularly loved the sex and drug scenes in Mott Smoke. And when we read The Rector Fundamentalist, we were somewhat disappointed to find an almost complete lack of drug and sex scenes. And we hope that in your third novel, you'll keep people like us in mind, your true fans. Uh, And so, you know, is that the Pakistani way in which my books are read? Who knows? But it varies from place to place. I would say this, that the place in the world where I'm most likely to bump into people who read my work is Pakistan. Like the dreadlocked, blonde, pierced gentleman thought the reluctant fundamentalist was about him. I always read Test of the D'Urbervilles, and I'm sure that Thomas Hardy wrote that (laughs) about me. Exit West. It's one of six books nominated for the Booker Prize, which will be given at London's Guildhall next Tuesday night. It's the second time you've made the shortlist. Your disappointingly, untitillatingly pornographic, The Reluctant Fundamentalist, was your last. What's the event itself like? Can you describe it for us? Is it like a massive, crazy Caligula-style party? Or is it just full-on nerd prompt? Well, I think if you win, it becomes a massive Caligula-style party. I haven't won yet. <laughs> you watch with your nose against the yeah, glass. Yeah, I can't wait. So it's a black tie affair. In my case, I'm going to wear a national dress, a Pakistani black shawani, partly because it's a lot more comfortable and partly because I don't own a tux. My wife is going to fly in from Lahore, meet me there. We're going to go to Guildhall. And now Guildhall is the oldest standing non religious building in London. So it's like a thousand-year-old structure. And when you go inside, it's sort of like you've wandered in on the Harry Potter hat-sorting ceremony. It's this ancient (laughs) room with these trussed wooden things. Everybody's dressed up. And then you sit down, and it's a fantastically ancient-looking place. And the ceremony is sort of like a a poor man's Oscars. Speeches are made, and somebody wins, and TV cameras zoom in, and everybody smiles and weeps quietly, and they're the after-parties. I've got the odds just in for my bookmaker. You, second favourite. You're pretending you don't know this. With four to one odds, your publicist has got a head in her hands behind George Saunders' Lincoln and the Bardo. Six to four favourite. The winner gets £50,000. That's $67,000, dear listener. Can you describe the emotions as a writer that you feel as you approach this event, which is closest I can think of to a literary cup final 
It's a strange thing, right? It's a potentially life-changing thing to win the Booker Prize. It is, right. But that said, for me, just being shortlisted with Russian Fundamentalist took a book that almost nobody in the UK had read. It was actually a bestseller in the US when it was published, but completely quiet in the UK. In fact, I don't think I had a single interview, although I lived in London. And I'd done like a month-long book tour in the U.S. and gone all over the place. And then I, in London, where I live, I don't think a single mainstream news outlet even interviewed me. Not enough sex scenes. They were, yeah, sadly disappointed. And then it was shortlisted, and then some interviews came, and people began to look at it. And then it slowly began to sell and wound up being this colossal bestseller over there on the back of the shortlist. So, But how do you feel? Like, you're thinking about it. Is it in the back of your mind the whole time when you're lying down just before you go to sleep? Or you feel, does it feel like your bar mitzvah is approaching... Or are you just like, you know what? I mean, can you, can you tell you've written something good? Can you judge the totality of your work? And no, I, Rosen, I've written a bloody good book, no matter what happens on Tuesday. Are you able to tell that? Yeah, I, mean, I don't think the result of the prize will affect what I think about the book. It would be nice if five other people felt the same way on that particular evening. But uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's not about that. I mean, my, my wife, Zara, for example, still says that her favorite of my books is How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia. And that book, you know, was not nominated for the Booker. And these things are very valuable in terms of bringing attention to your work and hopefully readers finding them. But it is simply not the case that the winner of a prize is the best book because, you know, we're not engaged in, like, the same sport. It's not like we're all doing 100-meter sprints. And so what's useful is to have a conversation about what do we think good literature is. And that's not a conversation with a right answer, but it's a conversation with which if you approach in the right spirit and with a degree of rigor is worth having. Spoke to... My mate, Howard Jacobson, the great Mancunian author, the mm. night that he won the Booker Prize in 2010, and he screamed joyously down the phone at me. And he said, in his own words, he said, the fact that his books, his work now will never be forgotten, he screamed down the phone. That, that, that was the meaning of winning in that instant for him. Does that mean anything to you? I'm not sure if that's how I would... I mean, who knows? I haven't won the thing. I mean, I don't know what kind of stuff I'd be screaming if I were to win. I hope I could sound halfway as coherent as he clearly did in that moment. But it's a strange thing to write these books. You sit in a room all by yourself, and you put this thing out into the world. And writers are in this weird position where then for a little while some people pay some attention to what you've done, and you sort of hope for the best. And I guess what you want is to believe that, you know, you set out to do this thing as well as you could and you made something beautiful and it did what you wanted it to do and it hit other people and they felt that. And you're looking for some sign that that has occurred. And so, yes, when this huge literary award gives you that sign, it feels like something. But perhaps it shouldn't matter more than if an old lady sitting next to you on the tube or subway sort of turns to you and said, you know, I've read your book, it made me cry. That's the same, really. I'm excited, but I'm going to try to stay okay with either way. And if you don't win, I hate to raise that spectrum. What does that feel like? Well, I'm down a few quid. I mean, I, well, I'm not personally, but Someone my friends. George Sunday. Yeah, but the odds are so yeah. poor. I mean, he, you know, he, he got it for a lot of money to make it worth your while. I, I would bet on the guy. I think Lincoln the Bard is a damn good book. I mean, I read it, and I think it's a phenomenal work. I think Ali Smith's Autumn is really, really good, and I'm reading Emily Friedland's book now. It's excellent. So I'm making my way to the shortlist. Paul Oster, I'll read afterwards, as long as the rest of them put together. But if I don't win, I'm sure I'll be disappointed, but it'll be okay. This is a kind of lucky fluke to happen in the first place. I think every writer has to keep that in mind. It's, there were 50 great books this year, maybe more. And if they happen to like these six, I mean, one of yours is one of them, you know, just count your blessings and leave it at that. I think you should channel your inner Jackie Hoffman at the Emmys and just scream, damn it, damn it, really loudly like she did 
when she lost out in her category. But, <laughs> but to be honest, it, it's a challenging time to be writing fiction. Big novelists like Nicole Krauss, Nathan Englander, struggled recently with their big releases. I was chatting to an agent about this, and he said, when the world is as chaotic as it is now, literary fiction suffers because the world is stranger than the imagination. Yeah, well, the world is pretty strange. I mean, I think it probably has been. Uh, There's some damn good books written in the 1910s, 20s, 30s, 40s, and the world was fairly messed up. I think one thing which did happen was there was a moment where mass-produced printed books were the dominant form of storytelling or close to, and so people made good money off of it, and the idea came that writers will generally make a decent living. That idea has sort of slipped away from us now. But for me, if I can do it and make a living at it, I consider myself very fortunate. But if I can't, I'm not stopping writing. I'm getting a job. Back to the cubicle. Yeah, well, back to the cubicle or something, yeah. David Simon, the wire creator, he told us you just got right either about dragons, zombies, or breasts. I've got to do the dragon and the zombie ones still. (laughs) I've had some breasts. Maybe it's a gap in my oeuvre. The book industry might be in flux. The world might well be in flux. And you've written, I spend much of my life in low-grade terror. I can relate to that, Mosin. But you've also said something very different and quite beautiful. You said, I think it's very important to resist that anxiety, to think of ways of resisting the constant inflow of negative feelings, not to become depoliticized, but to actually work actively to bring into being an optimistic future. In fact, you've said part of the great political crisis we face in the world today is a failure to imagine plausible, desirable futures. How do you retain your optimism? I'm a dad, so it's kind of part of the job. I have to imagine there's going to be a better world for these kids to grow up in. But also, I think it's a political responsibility, right, that we have a duty to be optimistic. Not like foolishly optimistic, hey, everything's going to be great, but if we each lean the right way. And as a storyteller, it's sort of trying to imagine our way out of this terror of the future. Because 50 years ago, if we were having this conversation and we said, what will the future look like? We asked a bunch of people on the street here in New York, 1967, they would have said it's going to be flying cars and space stations and robot dogs and the Jetsons and wealth and it'll be amazing. (laughs) And now you ask people and go on the street and say, what's the future in 50 years? It's like it's, you know, environmental degradation. New York is underwater. My kids can't go to college. It's like a civil war, Life isn't worse today than it was 50 years ago in aggregate. I mean, you know, the world is, as a whole, more prosperous. But the futures run away from us and become horrifying. And that's a problem, because if the future is horrifying, then what happens is nostalgia, political nostalgia. People want to take us back, right? Like, let's go back to the caliphate of the 8th century, or let's go back to Britain before the European Union, or... Oh, uh, the empire. Yeah, these are nostalgic visions. Now, the problem is you can't go back. Never. We've never been able to. I'd love to go and play with the kids I hung out with when I was five years old in the playground in school, but that playground has been flattened and the guy who sold ice cream is now dead and the kids have dispersed all over the world. That's how life is. So we need to come up with something that isn't nostalgic, where we can head to. And that's where writing comes into it, storytelling comes into it, because the beauty of fiction and storytelling is that you can imagine what could be without being hostage to what already is and what has been before. You can imagine new stuff. Zombies, dragons, breasts. Yeah, in that order, I think. Is optimism, is it like a muscle that you work at 
like a, a core muscle in the gym. Yeah, it is a muscle that you How work do you out. Do it? It's a muscle you work out, but maybe it's less like your pecs and sort of more like your neck, right? Where if you don't get you stretch your neck out and you get to be my age, forty six, you're hunched over a computer all the time. You, have you ne- look very good. You have neck. Well, thank you. You have you have neck pain constantly unless you're doing some kind of flexibility stuff. Pilates, I'm told, is the exercise of the future. It's like that, I think, optimism. You know, we don't become like sort of muscle-bound optimists, but we are prone to, I think so many of us, and I think culturally, we're prone to a kind of depression. You know, if we think of the suicide bomber as this iconic figure of our age, what is a suicide bomber, right? A suicide bomber is somebody committing suicide. Yes, they happen to blow themselves up and kill other people, but people were killing other people before. These people are doing it and also dying themselves That is an act of suicide, and that's the sign of a desperately depressed human culture. So what do you do? You practically, you tend to walk a lot. You walk 90 minutes every morning. That's right. Yeah. What what do you do in in that hour? I don't do much. I mean, it's not very macho. It's amazing. Murakami, I think, like runs like 10 miles. You know, the guy's like a fitness fiend. That's on a slow day. Yeah, exactly. He's a triathlete and does like super ultra marathons. I, I just go for a little walk. But what do you do in that 90 minutes? What goes through the head? Whatever comes. I find it really useful to just walk around with my eyes open, not looking at my phone, not making phone calls, checking out the trees, the squirrels, you know, a uh, praying mantis, like about to catch something or be caught. During that time, stuff starts coming to my head. And at the end of the walk, one hour into it, it's suddenly like I've got something to write about. And I sit down and start writing it. It's such a simple, powerful, beautiful idea. You also retain your optimism by writing. How can we, how can my listeners, how should they do it? Writers write two different things. They write the stories that they're writing, my novels, and they write the story about what their life is like. There's a romance to being a writer. You kind of have to be in love with that because it's kind of a weird career. You sit by yourself and you very rarely make any money and maybe you don't even get published. And There's a romance to the tale that you tell yourself about your life. I'm a writer. That's cool. I wanted to be a writer. Now, I think that is something for everybody. Like When you don't feel like the protagonist of your own life, if there isn't a romance to the story you tell yourself about how your life is, that's a problem. And so crafting that story, should I move? Maybe yes. Should I do something different? Maybe yes. You only get one chance at this life. So make yourself excited by how you can tell it. I just realized this is going to be the last podcast I ever do before <laughs> making great life changes as I attempt to become the Jackie Collins of the next generation. Last question for you before I make sweeping life changes. You write towards the end of Exit West, in Marin, the Bay Area, and in other places too, both near and far, the apocalypse appeared to have arrived. And yet, it was not apocalyptic. Which is to say, that while the changes were jarring, they were not the end. And life went on, and people found things to do, and ways to be, and people to be with and plausible, desirable futures began to emerge. Unimaginable previously, but not unimaginable now. And the result was not something unlike relief. Mosin, I read this, and I wrote in the margin, the apocalypse, not as bad as it's cracked up to be. Big if true, but I found it to be an unbelievable relief. Well, it's because the apocalypse keeps happening. Right? In the sense that the apocalypse of our grandparents occurred. 
for my grandparents, the partition of India and Pakistan meant two-thirds of their friends left, and there was mass murder and rape all around them. The apocalypse did happen, right? But then afterwards, people still got married, they fell in love, they found people to be with, they had jobs. And so when we look at where we're headed, of course there's going to be stuff that isn't pleasant along the way. And for us, you know, each of us in our individual stories, it's going to end one day. Spoiler alert, but we don't get out of this alive. (laughs) But yet, each generation comes, they do cool stuff, the music can potentially get better, the food will definitely get better. Each generation will be a little bit cuter and sexier than the one that came before. The species, mongrelizing species that we are, will find cool stuff, cooler stuff, in fact. Because no kid, if you said, hey, want to go back 400 years in time and live that way, no kid ever says yes to that. Something's happened that was good. So I think we can be pretty certain that the apocalypses that we think about might happen, but they won't be as bad as we think. Oh, Wednesday night in Lahore. I cannot wait. I'm going to bring that into my life. Dear listener, Exit West available now buy it read it i hope it makes you think as much as it did me i'm off to the tailors to get a shawani <laughs> for myself but before i go let me say Mosin hamid thank you and godspeed at the bookers thank you hey prime members you can listen to men in blazers ad free on amazon music Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Okay, so if you had a time machine, how far mm-hmm. in time would you need to go back to be a dominant basketball player of that era? <laughs> I need to go to when Bob Cousy was playing. Back I in, would, in the plumber 27-year-old days? 27-year-old Shea would give Bob Cousy the f***ing business. <laughs> He's not guarding me. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shea Serrano. And we are back. We have a new podcast from Wondering. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the best. Each week, Shay and I are combing through all of the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling ones, and then handing out six pop culture-themed trophies for six basketball-related activities. Trophies like the Dominic Toretto I Live My Life a Quarter Mile at a Time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina Wine Mixer trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Six Trophies ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.